Hello and welcome to the journalism.co.uk podcast, a show where we bring you insights from media industry experts to help journalists do their jobs better. I'm your host, Jacob Granger. Today, we're going to be talking about communicating with clarity and confidence. Last week, we heard from BBC News presenter Ross Atkins, best known as a maestro of the news explainer format, about his new book, The Art of Explanation. I think of explanation as a series of layers. If you were building a house, you'd want to do the foundation first. You would then build you know, the first layer of bricks and on top of it, you'd build more and more and more. There, we learned about his trademark approach to explanation and how this framework also helps in a variety of scenarios beyond just presenting news. This is part two of the conversation, where we apply this approach to the everyday situations journalists might find themselves in. Coming up, you will learn how to be better at pitching stories and projects, asking audiences to trust you, and communicating with your colleagues. All because you've learned the secrets of being clear and concise. That's all coming up, so don't go anywhere. Let's start with a recap. I know it's cliche, but practice does in fact make perfect. Last week, Rost shared his basic explanation process with us. Define your objective from the start, collect, distill, and organize all relevant information, then simplify and declutter it, then rehearse and refine until your delivery is fluent. This helps in situations where you are in control, like presentations, speeches, and as we're gonna hear about in a minute, pitching. Always verbalize important information to yourself before delivering it for the first time. That's the key to confidence. For situations where you need to think on your feet, think job interviews or conversations with your colleagues, you want to do all of the above, but practice talking through your information from different starting points. That way, you become more fluid and flexible. But I wanted to know what part of your job you would like to be better at explaining. Let's start with this one from audience strategist Luba Kosova, who wants to know about pitching for projects. A perfect question for Ross, who has successfully pitched BBC Outside Source, a live programme that gathers information as it arrives from news wires, video feeds and social media. Before you get yourself in front of the people who you really need to listen to the pitch and who have the, the, the means to make it mm-hmm. real, if they like it, put the work in in advance to really think about what are the simple and high impact phrases that you can use to describe the idea when we were working on outside source, I had word documents that went to, I don't know how many pages, but they weren't going to be the thing that, that made the case to the people I was pitching the idea to. I needed to have really short, high impact phrases that summarized what I was hoping to achieve. And uh, I don't find those just pop up into my head in the moment. That's something that I'm going to want to think about in advance. So think about how you can simply and eloquently summarize what your asking for and what you're suggesting and and really refine those phrases so you're very comfortable using them. The second thing is, I always think that pitching an idea is essentially about you're telling part of a story and you're inviting whoever you're pitching to to become part of the next part of that story. So creating a narrative around your idea for me is always really important. You've got it this far, but to go any further, you need to join forces with whoever you're you're speaking to. So think about what that next stage looks like and think about how the people you're pitching to could be part of that. Can you tell a good story which involves you up to this point, but involves them beyond? The next thing is often, and I I don't mean to be blunt about this, but it's definitely true. People with the ability to commission things, to make things happen, are 
always very busy. They will always have heard quite a few pitches before, and they're going to want you to cut to it. And when they're listening to your pitch, they're going to be wanting to know, well, what's the core idea? Second, they're going to be wanting to know what's the story behind this? What's the ambition? And then third, they're going to be bluntly thinking, what do you want me to do? What do you ask? What are you asking of me? And you've got to be really clear about that. I've seen people with great ideas not get them over the line because they haven't in that moment managed to explain what they needed the people they were talking to to do. So really think about what's the practical ask? What is the thing that you would like them to do in order to carry on the process? And in my experience with pitching, that doesn't mean outlining everything they're going to need to do forevermore with this idea if it happens and if it and if it's successful because there's a whole bunch of stages that need to happen before you get to that moment i like to concentrate on what am i asking them to do to help me get to the next stage not the ultimate end goal but just in order to keep this idea moving forward what am i asking of them what, what's the immediate thing that they need to do with this information yeah what are you asking them to do in some cases it might be you're just asking them to say yes i i support this i remember the first time i talked to uh, a senior boss at the bbc about the 50 50 project was james harding who was head of bbc news then and after about six months of the project i had a meeting with him and i just said look this is getting bigger than i was expecting it's growing organically in the bbc newsroom i just need to double check if it's okay by you if you're if you're happy for me to say you're aware of it and that you're supportive of it and he said yeah that's absolutely fine please carry on so that was all I was asking of him. I wasn't asking for resources. I wasn't asking for any other action, but it, it was getting sufficiently big that it was important to me that the, the head of news was fully briefed on it, but also I wanted to know if he was supportive of it, and he was. Yeah. And do you think this translates to pitching for other things as well, whether that's pitching stories, pitching for funding? Is it all essentially the same thing in your mind? I think so. So let's imagine pitching stories. We've all been in 101 editorial meetings, and often the the stories that get chosen are the ones that are sold there and then in like a sentence or two, because the person has really gone, this is the story, this is what's happened, this is why it's relevant to our audience. And this is how I would like to make it. So they've given you all the information and the editors simply need to say, yes, I, I, I would like that. Sometimes maybe it's a more ambitious treatment that requires a couple of weeks work. Well, you have to do all of those things. What's the story? What's the treatment I'm suggesting? Why do I think it matters to the audience? But then there's an ask at the end of it, which is, do you mind if I spend the next two weeks working on it? So that's the ask. Mm. So you need to think about what it is that you're asking for and to say it uh, say it out loud because I guarantee the people you're pitching to will be thinking what is it that uh, needs to happen in order for this to carry on. Just a quick one from me and then we'll get back to the chat with Ross. Our digital journalism conference News Are Wired is just two months away and we'd love to see you there. Come and enjoy some panels and workshops about generative AI, what gets readers to pay, climate change reporting and much much more. That's taking place on the 15th of November at Reuters HQ in Canary Wharf, London. Head to newswire.com for the full agenda and to grab your tickets. We'll see you there. I feel like the two things in common between what we were saying about audiences and pitching for these things internally is, is 
essentially about removing friction and removing opportunities to disengage or, or reasons to kind of not be involved in some capacity. Is that about right? I think so. I mean, I should say that none of this guarantees that if you're pitching something that the answer is going to be yes. And believe me, I've pitched plenty of things where the answer hasn't been yes. All of these are just our tactics to mean that you have the best chance of the person you're pitching to understanding the idea as you're describing it, understanding where you hope it's going to go, understanding what you're asking of them in order for the idea to continue. Those are the three things that that you want them to understand. That doesn't guarantee they're going to do it, but you you want them at least to, to have understood those three things. There's one other thing which I find very effective. It actually connects to something we've just been talking about. If I'm pitching something, I like to anticipate the reasons why, quite reasonably, the person I'm pitching to isn't going to do it. So it was a great bit of advice, and I think I put it in the book, and I've not been able to find where I originally read it, but it stuck with me, which is that when you go into a job interview, it's that you don't just go in there to say all the things that you think you're great at. You need to anticipate the reason they won't give you the job. What are the weaknesses in your offer as the candidate and how are you going to address them? And I thought, oh, that's that's great advice, but that really applies to any type of pitch in that when you're going into the room, as well as being really excited about whatever it is that you're suggesting, just stop and think. The person you're pitching to, maybe hears 10 great ideas every single day. They're not necessarily going to be able to back all of them, even if your idea is a good one. So what are the reasons, often reasonable reasons, why this time they might not say yes to what you're asking for and then how can you address those concerns lack of resources ross lack of money might be a typical one that comes up so it might be so let's imagine if they they're thinking i just don't have the money to back this idea well is there a way that you can say to them at this stage i'm not asking for any resources i'm asking for your support or is there a way you can say the resources i'm asking for are this but you try and calibrate the ask that it's relatively low and therefore easier to say yes to than if you were walking in and saying, I need a huge budget in order to, to carry this on. What those concerns will be will, will be dictated by the idea that you're pitching and also the situation that the person you're pitching to is in. But stopping and thinking about, if I was the person I'm about to pitch to, what are the doubts and concerns and questions I would have and then how am I going to address all of those? I mean, that's going to put you in a good situation because when the questions and the doubts come, you won't be, I'm making the same point I made earlier, you won't be able to predict all of them, but you can probably predict some of them. And the ones that you've predicted, you will have thought about how you want to respond. Yeah, it's that word we keep coming back to, isn't it? Anticipation. Let's take another example from Witzer Wellinger. And I, and I interpret his question basically about how do we convince our readers that we deserve their trust. We, we see this now in the news industry, levels of trust um, towards the media from the public are you know, decreasing. If we're gonna ask people to support us, how do we best explain that we are deserving of that trust? Thanks for the question. Uh, clearly trust is a huge challenge for, for journalists at the moment. And there are some structural issues in terms of the information ecosystem that we're all using and living within that mean that journalists alone are not going to be able to address the issue of trust towards the information that's coming towards us in our lives. However, there are things that we can do that will help. The single biggest thing I think we can do is we can provide the evidence for why we're saying what we're saying. 
So if you watch my videos, which is a very small example, if I assert something, I almost always will provide you with the reason, the evidence for what I'm saying. I'm not saying trust me because I'm a BBC journalist. I'm not saying trust me because I'm from BBC News, though I of course hope people will do on both fronts. I'm saying trust me because here's the reason why I'm saying this. I'm not just asserting something and assuming that people will trust me as a journalist. I'm saying trust me because I'm, I'm showing you why I've reached this conclusion. And that is very powerful. And I think if you look at uh, our relatively new boss, the CEO of BBC News, Deborah Turness, she's put a huge emphasis on on transparency and making more space in our journalism to explain when we're asserting something, this is why we've come to be able to say this. When we can't be definitive, we explain why we can't be definitive. And if we just don't know, we explain the uh, endeavors that we've gone through to try and know and explain why so far we've not been able to ascertain that information. And so I think the the more that we can share the evidence we have that underpins our journalism is a very good way of of building a building trust. And it's one that uh, we've really tried to do explicitly within our videos. So there's three main questions you want to cover when pitching. What's the core idea? What's the ambition? And what do you want the other person to do? Anticipate why they might object and have a clear and concise defence. When it comes to asking readers to trust us, we often hear that people simply don't trust journalists or news organisations because they have an agenda or are biased. Ross's mindset here is to remove that barrier, ask people to trust the information as it is laid out plainly, not the organisation who is providing it. Next up, we're going to learn about explaining your ideas to your colleagues. News leaders in particular need to get buy-in within their teams to be part of a wider project or effort. Let's find out how to do that. When we're trying to convince colleagues of an idea or when we're trying to explain a decision that we're taking, or in my case, if you take the explainers, when I was trying to say to colleagues, I think this is a a format that's worth investing in, uh, supporting, the the thing that I try and do is to make sure that I can concisely and clearly explain my reasoning so that I can first of all explain what I'm hoping will happen, but I can also then explain the reasons why I think it happening is a good idea for the standard of our journalism, for our organization, for how it fits into the broader state of our industry. And those two things, the ability to explain the thing that you're trying to do and then explain the reasoning that underpins it is absolutely vital in any form, whether it's someone like me who's trying to persuade colleagues of an idea. And when I say it out loud like that, I guess it doesn't sound too complicated. Describe what you want to do, describe the reasons why you would want to do it. But in my experience, and I'm going to sound a bit like a stuck record here, the leaders who I see doing this most effectively have clearly spent time thinking about the language and the phrases that they're going to use to explain the idea and their reasoning. Because when they do that, there's a clarity that doesn't mean that every last colleague is going to be persuaded, but it does mean that everyone is very clear on what's being suggested and the reasons for it. And I think if you can get those two things across, that's always going to be helpful. And in my experience, that requires preparation and thought because it's always easier whether you're a leader or anyone else in a newsroom, to talk at length about an idea and the reasons for doing it, 
rather than to talk with precision and brevity about the idea and the reasons for doing it. Really helpful explanation that Ross, thank you. Let me let me preface this. One of the th- you know, one of the things that I really took is that there's examples of good and bad explanation all around us. It can be an advert on the side of a bus, it could be something we read, right. you know, it could be a cookbook. You talk about those at length and recipes as well. Yes. Best inspiration when it comes to explaining outside of news reporting. Um, well, I've taken a lot of inspiration from music, as you can tell from the book. At the start of it, it may not seem that obvious that listening to a piece of music might inspire how you approach your journalism. But on many cases, that's that's been the case. And in the book, I talk about a moment that I had sitting down in the BBC newsroom a few years ago when I guess I was having a sandwich or something and I was skim watching uh no what was happening i'd watched a i get this story right <laughs> i'd seen a documentary i'd seen a documentary about steely dan the band in the yeah. 70s <laughs> and and i was putting together a training course and i remember thinking there was this moment when i was watching this steely dan documentary and i thought i've got to mention this in my training course and i've mentioned it in the training course and i've also mentioned it in the book which is that there's an interview with a guy who used to play guitar with Steely Dan. And Steely Dan were famous for using lots of, they used to make kind of jazz, how would you call it? Jazz inspired pop is probably not the best way of putting it. But jazz pop. Jazz pop, I don't know if they, they would probably, I think their fans would bridle at that. But either way, it was basically <laughs> popular music, but but played by people who uh, were incredibly technically gifted and, and definitely influenced by jazz. And they had, a reputation for using lots of freelancers and one of these freelancers is uh is featured in this documentary and he talks about how they used to practice until they could they could just play the piece to within an inch of its life and then they would say okay now we're going to relax so he described how this two-stage process would happen which was getting yourself to a point of absolute precision but then remembering you've actually got to make a record that people want to listen to and then he said they would say relax and I remember watching this for the first time and then I remembered it as well when I was putting this training course together because, of course, no one would think that a documentary about an album made in Los Angeles in the 70s would have anything to do with broadcast journalism in the 2010s and 2020s. But it did really, really resonate. And the funny thing was that when I saw that documentary, it was around the time when I was trying to explain outside source and what I was trying to achieve to people. I was like, I want it to be really high protein and really efficient, but I also want it to feel quite loose and consumable and engaging. And I was really struggling to find the language to describe it. And then suddenly watching this interview in a Steely Dan documentary made me think, okay, that's how I can describe it. So that's a long way of saying that I often get triggers for how to see communication and explanation from places that are a long way from where you might find them. And I think my advice that I hope comes through in the book is you'll spot them if you're open to them, like you're describing. If you're sitting on the bus or the tube, there might be something done in an advert that's done very well. We got a pamphlet from my daughter, younger daughter's new secondary school the other day. And I was like, this is brilliantly set out. And I was thinking, okay, how have they done that? So there are lots of inspirations around us of people doing it well. We just have to be open to to spotting it and taking the inspiration. Perfect. I mean, jazz is well known for being improvised music, but it's also true that you can't really improvise music without very solid music theory. So the two kind of go. <laughs> That's the two do complement each other. Although the case of Steely Dan, 
I guess there might have been a bit of improvising going on on the solos, but I think most of the time it was pretty well planned out. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you haven't got your music theory, your your improvised solos won't sound very good. Um, let's make this one quick fire because we're almost out of time. One rule that you live by every day when it comes to explanation, what is it? Don't ignore your discomfort when you don't understand something. It's so tempting to skim over something and think, oh, I've just about understood that. One of the most important things with explanation is you cannot explain something well unless you understand it. And the only way to reach a point of really understanding it is to be honest with yourself when you aren't quite getting an aspect of the story. And when you're under pressure, and journalists are always under deadline pressure, it can be tempting to think, yeah, I've just about got that. And, you know, my colleague, Mary Fuller, who's one of the longtime producers of our explainers, is absolutely brilliant at this, but we all try and do it. Even if we're under pressure, if we think we haven't fully understood a subject or an aspect of a subject, we stop, we make sure we have, and then we carry on. So don't ignore the clues that you're not fully understanding something because those clues are massive gifts. If you can take them and then address the thing they're highlighting, it'll improve your clarity and your conviction no end. Smashing advice. Thank you so much for this, uh, Ross. All the best with the book and uh, thank you for jumping on the show. Really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the questions and being invited on. My takeaway from speaking with Ross is that being skilled at explaining gives you an edge in many scenarios, not just presenting the news. What I also learned is that a core part of explanation is anticipation. This isn't some sixth sense. This just means putting yourself in the shoes of the person receiving the information. Why might the reader not understand this news story? What objections might my colleague have to this idea? What do I need my boss to do to give the go-ahead to this project? The more you can practice predicting and responding, the greater your odds of success and the greater your chances of being clearly understood. However, I'd love to know what you learned. I'm on Twitter slash X at jpgjournalism or email me on jacobatjournalism.co.uk. You can check out all of our other podcast episodes by searching and subscribing to the journalism.co.uk podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. But that's all we have time for today. I've been your host, Jacob Granger. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.